Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Jury duty. Just those two words evoke a lot of reactions. And the stories you get from jury duty, they can be awkward. So I proceeded to say my name in full and give my full home address to the court and murderer that was on trial. They can be full of assumptions. They're going to say, that's some old religious Bible thumper. And he's a black guy, got dreadlocks, and yeah, nicks that dude. These stories can be absurd. People think that if you say you are racist against a certain group, that that will automatically get you out of jury duty. But like, you can tell who means it, and it's just saying it to get out. Or like this juror from the Derek Chauvin trial, these stories can be traumatic. All of the video, all of the testimony, all of the tears sits with you. I'm Kyone Wolf, Stories from the Jury Box on Audacious, right after the news. Hi. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I know this is a lot for you. Yeah, I'm, we'll, we'll try it and we'll see what I feel after. Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't really want to, I'm, I'm mostly interested in what it felt like from the beginning through and the end and since. And so I'm not interested in talking about the case and the facts of the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and the name of that person whose voice you just heard won't be mentioned because she's been fearing for her life since serving on the jury that found former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murdering George Floyd. We'll hear more from her later in the hour. Today we're hearing stories about jury duty. How bizarre, inspiring, awkward, funny, and deadly serious it can be. I'll never forget my first and only time serving. And I gotta say, I, you know, I felt really excited to get on a jury, to rise to the occasion to ace the assignment. When I was in school, for the most part, I was a terrible student. But here in this courthouse, I followed every direction. I was meticulous in my adherence to the instructions. I was present and focused at all times. Also, I got to be the foreperson, which means I got to talk, which clearly I love to do. So I had to make sure everything I did in that courtroom was perfect. And it was. When I talk about it, I'm lighthearted. It was a civil case, you know, just damages from after a minor car crash. But sometimes I think if it were a criminal case, yeah, the whole story and tone would be different. Michael Leong of Hartford was put on a criminal trial. And as you'll hear, he was also the foreman. Here's his experience, including one really uncomfortable moment. I mean, I didn't know it was a murder trial until I got picked. So I just knew that it was a trial of some sort. So then uh, when I was picked, then I somehow got voted to be the foreman. 
How did that feel? Because when I was voted to be the foreman, I was like, this is my dream come true I never dreamed of. I was elated. How did you like being a foreman? I will say that I was probably less elated. I mostly got it because nobody else wanted it. And we weren't able to move forward until they picked a foreman. So I just said, okay, I'll do it. Can we just get this over with? So I said I would do it. And and so that's how I became foreman through, you know, apathy. (laughs) (laughs) Excellence through apathy. That's probably my tagline now. So they gathered us all into the courtroom. They had the accused on the stand and the judge asked us to all go through some basic information. And she was like, please state your name and where you live. And I remember it specifically being those words because if she says where you're from, I would have just said a town. But she specifically said where you live. So I then proceeded to say my name in full and give my full home address to the court and murderer that was on trial. Person who was on trial for murder, yes. Yes. And nobody else in my group decided to do that. <laughs> And as soon as I did it, I was like, I don't know if that's what she meant. <laughs> did you ask for, for clarification or did you see on their faces, dear God, what half this four person done to themselves? No, I wasn't looking around a whole lot, but I do remember when I did it. As soon as I did it, one of those moments of clarity that happened as soon as you do something, you're like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that that faux pas influenced my decision to vote for not guilty, but I was glad that that was the consensus that we came to. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a little touch and go for a little bit. I was like, oh my God, if this guy goes away, it's not going to be good. <laughs> Would you want to serve again? Um, I never try and get out of jury duty. I always show up to my thing. Um, I always hope that I get pardoned before the event happens, but if they call me, then they call me. I don't look at it as a negative thing. It's just an inconvenient thing sometimes. But, you know, it is part of our uh, the process of being an American citizen to participate in the uh, the thing that is the thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our civic duty, as you will, as you will. Michael Leong, thank you for your service. Thank you. For this next juror story, it's important for you to know that Reverend Dr. Bishop John Selders is a man of faith. Lots of different kinds of faith, for sure, but faith in God is kind of a big one for him. So when he arrives for jury duty, what happens when he makes his faith known? Now, the very first time I did this, I collared up. I thought, you know, let me go down and represent as Reverend Dr. Bishop. And uh, no, wait, wait. were you thinking that having the collar would be like your ticket in? No, I thought for sure it would exclude me from service. <laughs> Why? Because, you know, the religious guy, you know, no yeah, religious guy is going to be fair. He's going to be uh, uh, compassionate. Um, that's good, right? I didn't have that. I was <laughs> thinking the other way around that they're going to say that's some old religious Bible thumper. And yeah, nicks that dude. And he's a black guy, got dreadlocks. That don't match. So. (laughs) One thing after another, huh? That's right. I I went down that road. So I get, you know, the the voodoo. Voodoo. 
Right. I know the language, girl. I ain't listen. I ain't know. You know, I don't. I didn't watch Law and Order, all the more legal show. I don't. But I know voodoo. You know. <laughs> so I, we're in the jury box. The first question off the box comes to me: Can you be fair and impartial? Blah blah blah. blah something like that. It was some <laughs> about partiality and fairness and all. I said sure. And uh, I get on the jury. How'd you feel about that? Well, I was like, cool. Now, since then, I've been on cases. I've been on, uh, I've had four, maybe four or five other opportunities to be on. And I decided I was never going to wear collar again. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little more. Because when, we, when, when honestly, like me coming from where I'm coming from, when I think about someone with a collar, I just like, I think good. And that's also because I've never been <laughs> somehow <laughs> done wrong by someone with a collar. But I think as someone, I don't know, in this arena, that that would be a real tool for justice, right? I mean, it's a symbol of fairness and equity to you, I imagine. I mean, you can speak for yourself, but it really means something to have that collar on. And I, I don't know, why don't, where are you and I disconnecting on it? You would know better considering you're the one who wears it. Right. No, we, you're not disconnecting on it at all. I, I think I had all of that that you had. I thought it would be a symbol of import in that kind of way. What I then began to feel like is it exceptionalized me. And I didn't want that exception. I wanted to be treated like any other person. Now, of course, they ask you what you do uh, in the context of it. And so, you know, at times I've, I've had to say, I am a pastor of a church and and uh, or when I was um, college chaplain, I'm a college chaplain, which denotes my my profession is a, is of a religious sort. If it's okay with you, I'd like to ask your personal reflections on how you feel about how our courts are run, how our juries look, how our juries reflect us, or how they don't. What are your feelings in terms of being a black man on a jury? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Interestingly enough, the cases that I have served on as a jurist, um, one was a case with a young man, a young man of color. And I do have a sense of, man, I'm the only one of color that could have served on this panel, this jury. And I was at one time. Another time, I wasn't the only. I was one of a number. And again, in that particular case, it felt like we weren't enough. <laughs> it wasn't representational. I also know how many people who have had some, some experience with our judicial system, they're not too ready to deal with our judicial system from another space and place, right? So I also have had conversation with family members and members of my congregation and, and folk in the community about serving on and being a part of the civic taking seriously their, this contract to be civically engaged and to hear their stories, you know, of their reticence not to do that. And so, yeah, I, I'm a little ambivalent. You know, I would say at times I'm also that government is like voting. I don't like none of the candidates, but I'm going down there and I'm going to register my vote because there were people who died for me, who sacrificed greatly for me to have access to the vote today. And so 
I kind of feel like that, um, that is something I'm going to do. And that's how I, I speak about it with relationship to others. Um, I'm not too overly preachy. I hope I'm not. Um, well, I mean, if someone's going to be preachy, you well, I kind of got the job description for it, but I hear you. That's right. And and of course, I served the bill. I am a preacher, so that I preach. <laughs> too bad, so sad. <laughs> I tell my kids that. I tell uh, my kids, Alicia and Jane McKenzie, your dad is a preacher. So every now and then I'm going to get turned up and the Holy Ghost is going to come. <laughs> the spirit will move me, right? That's how it go. But no, I am aware that there are not enough of us who are, in fact, engaged in this process. And this is just another, yet another side of, of what government looks like and what governance looks like. So yeah, I do think about it. And I have a young brother, I'll tell you this lastly, he's 11 years younger than me, who has served to date 27 years in prison. Um, Lord willing, or as the Muslims would say, uh, inshallah, he will be released uh, March 31st this year. Yeah. When my little brother was uh, tried and convicted of nine counts, he got mandatory sentencing and um, three strikes you out and all of that that drove that policy. Uh, you know, 1997 was the last time I saw him. All right, 27 years ago. Uh, his name is Tyrone Delaney Ford, but there's a multi-sided reality to juries, right? This is just, you know, serving as a jurist is one part of this. And I do it secretly and quietly. I am serving on that this jury because I wish somebody like me would have been on his jury, that they would understand and serve honorably, integrally in ways that don't allow the law not to also be human. Bishop John Selders, thank you for talking with me. Of course, you knew you was going to get more out of me than meets the eye. You always do. John is also the Assistant Dean of Students and Coordinator of Community Standards at Trinity College in Hartford. And he's one of the leaders of Moral Monday, CT. After the break. Each judge is really unique and does their own thing. So, like, no courtroom is quite the same. The reason our system works is because regular people put their day aside and they sit down and they do these things. And without it, our system doesn't work. More stories from jury duty from a clerk and an attorney, plus what it was like being a juror deciding the fate of the police officer who murdered George Floyd. In my brain, I, I think it was like, I don't want to be on this jury. Like, who really wants to be on this jury? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, stories from jury duty. I was curious about juror stories from other people in the judicial system, like an attorney or a clerk. Steph McGillivary of Enfield, Connecticut, was a jury clerk for a while, and then she became a courtroom deputy for the United States District Court for the District of Connecticut. I told her about how, you know, whenever I think about jury duty, I always think about this clip 
from 30 Rock featuring Tina Fey as Liz Lemon. Excuse me, Imperial Guard. How long do these arson trials typically last? A couple weeks, probably. You can drop the voice. Oh, this used to get me out of jury duty in Chicago all the time. This ain't Chicago, honey. Look at these people. I don't really think it's fair for me to be in a jury because I can read thoughts. Dismissed. So that clip is what I think of when I think of jury duty. And that's as me as someone who's been on a jury. I loved it. I was fascinated by it. I would do it again. But have you had any pretty wild encounters with people in the uh, arena where you worked? I have had a couple. I I wish they were as fun as uh, Liz Lemon. What mostly happens is people think, and this is a misconception, People think that if you say you are biased or prejudiced or racist against a certain group, that that will automatically get you out of jury duty. But that's not the case because there are some judges, as I like to say, you can tell the real racist from the fake one. Like you can tell who means it. And it's just saying it to get out of doing it. Is it just a vibe? It's a vibe. That racist vibe? the racist vibe like you can say like you would give it to like uh i i once got a letter that was so horrific like horrific it was basically this person was like i can't serve on a jury because i think every single crime was is caused by a brown or black person and it was one of those things where the the language that they used you're like this person really means it mm-hmm. like this person there's intent behind it. When you read something, you can you can tell when someone's like, what if I said I don't like, that's how you can tell because they would say, I don't want to do jury duty. What if I said <laughs> I didn't like? <laughs> subtle, real subtle. That's nice. I'd say that to me on the phone. What if I said I was racist? I'd say, well, I think you'd have to come in and tell the judge that. <laughs> but the letter, this letter in particular when they were really bad, you have to, you have to bring them to a judge. Like I couldn't excuse anybody. They have to be excused by a judge and you would get a judge who would read it. And then they would say, "Mm, maybe not worth it. Like maybe not worth the hassle of bringing this person in. And then sometimes they'd read it and say, Oh, Oh, they're going to have to say that to my face. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had an attorney screw up? something when it comes to jurors. And I asked that because it didn't screw it up for me. But when I was in voir dire and, you know, they're trying to figure out who they want to be on the jury, I introduced myself and one of the lawyers on the way out said, oh, by the way, I'm a really big fan of your work. And I said, well, thank you. And then I went into the hallway and I thought, was that okay? I mean, I'm, was that okay? So I asked the lady who was probably doing your job, you know, this this attorney said, I'm a really big fan of your work. Is that okay that they did that? Like, is that going to compromise the trial? And, and and she asked me, well, do you still think you could be fair and impartial after hearing that compliment? And I said, well, well, yeah, yeah, yes. She's like, then it's not a problem. And it was this weird little hiccup. And, and I wonder if you've ever had anything like that. I did have one attorney after like the jury was selected and they were getting ready for trial. And he told the judge that he didn't think the jury was diverse enough, but his client was a white man. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> what did the jury look like? The jury looked was a jury of his peers. It was mostly it was mostly white, but it was like he said, "I'm uncomfortable with how un, like not diverse this jury is." And the judge, who happened to be African American, said, "That may be the first time anybody has ever said that to me." <laughs> he goes, "She goes, but he's white." <laughs> <laughs> Now there's federal jury duty and there's state jury duty. Federal jury duty has a wild thing though that I I that state jury duty just doesn't have and it's a custom video for your juror experience. So like in the state court, here's another difference between state and federal. In the state court you are kind of in that theater area with like the chairs and there's you know and you're called in. In the federal everybody goes in at the same time and is in the jury selection and then everybody goes to the courtroom at the same time. That's all like nobody's called individually. Everybody goes in. It's like a group activity, but you start out your group activity with a kick-in video featuring a Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. We want the whole community represented. We want people who are people engaged in their ordinary work, but who take time off to hear a case, as well as others. We want a full sampling of the community because that's who we are entrusting our lives and our honor and our most important issues. Telling you all about how awesome jury duty is. And like, it's so inspiring. It's one of those, like, I, I watched it every single time. And every single time I would just be like, God, I'm just so freaking inspired. I know you have to have heard stories about jurors, like, becoming friends and reuniting afterwards. Because the one time I was on a jury, I stayed in touch with this guy, Jonathan, who's really smart and interesting. And I don't I I bet that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, there was a, they had a a case that that went on for like nine months. Like the jury had to serve and that one was almost every day for nine months. Like they were literally like serving, serving, serving. And they, they became such, so close that they have reunions. And not only that, they became close with the judge. So now when the judge has uh, naturalizations, he'll invite he'll invite them in to come in and like read a passage because he reads this beautiful poem. Like each judge is, each judge is really unique and does their own thing. So like, no, it's no courtroom is quite the same. It's all like a little different. I learned that from night court. It is like night court. When I would work late, I would that. <laughs> when, when it was late at night and there was like three people in the office, I would put the night court team on. Oh, Steph McGillivary, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for your service. You're welcome. Steph McGillivary was a jury clerk and a courtroom deputy for the United States District Court for the District of Connecticut. Full disclosure on this next jury duty story. In 2016, a person driving a car hit me while I was riding my bike, and I got a nifty plate and eight screws that are still keeping my collarbone together, and Brennan Mackey was my attorney. So when I was thinking about making this episode, I wondered what kind of stuff 
He's seen as a personal injury attorney. And of course, he had a story for me. It was a medical malpractice case against Hartford Hospital pending in Hartford. Um, and we had uh, gotten through everything else you do uh, with a case like this. We were up to the point we were picking the jury. And that starts with a, um, a general introduction to the jury. There's about 35 or 40 people in the room. And then they peel off a smaller portion of those people to go with you to the courtroom. And then they peel off an individual to do individual voir dire. And for those who don't know what voir dire is. Oh, voir dire is uh, it's, it's a very unique process in Connecticut where the lawyers for the case uh, have, have an opportunity to ask questions and answers to an individual juror. Uh, and to see if they'd be a good fit for the case or a bad fit for the case. And they both have to agree on it. They do. I mean, there's objections you can have for cause. You have peremptory challenges. But in the end, generally speaking, the lawyers have to agree the person's acceptable. So then what happened? All right. So um, so, so we had, uh, I think we had been picking two or three days at that point. And uh, we had a lady come down and talk with us. And she revealed that she had been a prior claimant against Harvard Hospital. Good to know. Yeah, it's good to know. And uh, so she was immediately, obviously, not suitable for the case. Uh, and that should have been that. But she went back to the main jury assembly room and proceeded to tell everybody in a very loud voice how awful Harvard Hospital was, uh, which caused the entire pool to be disqualified. And we had to start all over. <laughs> the entire pool, like 35 to 40 people? Yeah. Oh. So it was quite the adventure. There are a lot of people who don't like being on juries. They don't want to be on a jury. They get the thing in the mail and they roll their eyes and they start Googling ways to get out of it. And there's no convincing them of doing their so-called civic duty. And then there are some people who are like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I'm going to make the best jurist. For those in the former camp, what would you like to say to them? Even though you know you can't convince them to want to be a juror, what, what would you like them to maybe think about? Uh, I think the single biggest thing I would say to those people is next time it may be you and, and you may need access to the system and you may need people like you sitting uh, to find what's fair for your case because you and the other side can't agree on that. And it doesn't matter what kind of case it is. Uh, but if, if we don't have people who are willing to take the time out of their day, and I know it's a pain, it really is a disruption to your life. Uh, but if you're not willing to put your life aside and serve when you need that service, it may not be available to you because people won't be there. And, that, and that's the reason our system works is because regular people put their day aside and they sit down and they do these things. And without it, our system doesn't work. And for the latter group, the people who love the idea of being on a jury, is that ever a problem? Are you ever like a little too thirsty for it? We, we get a little nervous when people come in doing cartwheels. Um, it's, uh, yeah, but, but, you know, I, I, I personally like people who are enthusiastic about it. A lot of people are intellectually intrigued by it. They want to learn more about the system. They want to know what this is all about. And those are the people I can count on during my trials who are going to pay attention. They're going to look at every detail and they're probably going to give everybody a fair shake. Um, so, yeah, we, we, I, you don't see them too often, but when you do see them and they're genuinely enthusiastic and they want to learn about the process, it's, just, it's really cool. They probably also listen to public radio. Absolutely. And they probably donate too. <laughs> 1-800. Brennan Mackey, thank you so much for telling me your story. My pleasure. When we get back. The fear is real, and I think the threats have proven to be real. And of course, you know, I've got two kids, too. 
So you worry about it there. What it was like being on the jury that put former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin away for murdering George Floyd. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The final segment of our show about jury duty is a conversation I had with a woman who served on the jury that convicted a police officer for murder. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years after murdering George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. She asked us not to use her name because, as you'll hear, she's received death threats due to her involvement with the case. Here she is telling me about when she found out that she'd been chosen for this jury. You're in shock, right? Like you kind of sit down and in my brain, I, I think it was like, I don't want to be on this jury. Like who really wants to be on this jury? But there's another part of me. I'm super analytical and super logical And I know, and this is no offense to you who has a radio show, but the media portrays the storyline however they want want it to be told, right? Right. So for me, it was like, but then on the other hand, I would actually know what happened. Nobody else is going to know as much as these jurors are as far as what happened. And and, and, uh, even though the whole thing ended up being televised or or audio-vised, however you want to say that, you know, you're kind of like, I really want to know the truth, but you're also like, I really don't want to do this. There's a lot of fear. This case had video footage that we in the public could choose whether or not we watched any or all of, but you did not have the choice. So when you had to watch that footage, how did you... How did you take care of yourself? Um, you can't. You don't. Um, so prior to being in the courtroom, that very first day of the trial was the first day I ever saw the whole video. So I had seen parts of it before, but I had turned it off because... I could not watch a man die. I could not actively watch a man die. I just couldn't, I, it wasn't in me. And I was like, I felt sick watching the video when it first happened. And so I turned the video off and I never saw the full thing. I only saw the first couple of minutes probably, but, and so in the courtroom, it's the first time you're seeing it. And then you're seeing it over and over and over again. And you can't talk or process this with anyone. So, you know, obviously my kids knew and my mom knew because if we were ever get sequestered at any point in time, she would have to stay with the kids. So, you know, a couple of people knew, but it's not like you can go home and process this. You can't go to your mental health therapist and talk about it in therapy. And you don't even have time, right? Because you're in court all day and then you get home, then you're in court the next day. So it's not like you can do 
anything really outside of jury duty for that time that you're there. So, and you can't talk to the other jurists about it. Um, that's a no-no as well. So everything, all of the video, all of the testimony, all of the tears sits with you. So when this whole thing starts and you have to get to the courthouse, you drive to a secured location that's protected visually, securely, and then you get into a, a vehicle with a few of the other jurors and that's it. So when you're going through this process of being protected, secured, this place to this place to this place, lots of people with guns and badges, and you're on a jury deciding the fate of a police officer. So there's all these inputs going on. I, I just, I, if I can get anywhere near what that feels like, my first thought is, oh my God, that must've been so scary. You know, there was so many different points in time where it was it does go through your head that all these police, even though they don't know my name, they now know my face or they, you know, all of this. And, and this is against police officers and this is going to be a historic case. Right. And so there's definitely that fear, that threat every time. And, it, you know, there's a lot of fear. There's so many things that goes through your mind. I, I think the biggest one was that our names would be leaked during the trial. We knew if that happened, of course, we would be sequestered in a heartbeat because you're going to get barraged with stuff. But I think at the very end of the trial, you know, the judge and the clerk came and talked to us for about an hour and a half afterwards. Um, we were down there just talking and we were given the option for the Hennepin County Sheriff to notify our local police departments so that they could have extra patrols or whatever. And we were all like, no. I mean, they don't know our names right now. Let's keep it that way. I mean, our names eventually are going to come out because that's the law. But as long as I can put off my local police department knowing who I am, uh, yeah, I don't want them to know who I am, where I live, anything about me being on this trial. And I would say, at least with the other people that were in my car, we all had that same fear. We did not want our local police to know because you don't know how they feel about things, right? Even now with my name out there, there's certain times that I can pass the police or I see a certain thing and my heart just starts racing, which is really silly. Like, it, it, I mean, I feel it's silly for me anyways. Um, I don't think the police will do anything to me, but, uh, you know, I think majority of people say that. And yet we see stuff happening every day that we can't believe the police are doing. So when my name was about to get released the morning of, um, or it was the morning before, I can't remember. I did have the Hennepin County Sheriff reach out to my local department and the chief of police called me from the local department and he it was nice. He said, we've got your back and you did a great service and you did what was, he didn't say it, but he said, said you did what was right, you know, kind of thing. So um, it was nice to hear that from the chief of police, but there's still that fear. And today still, there can be times that I, it's triggering. Yeah. I mean, when we contacted you for this interview, this 
conversation between the two of us, this was one you weren't totally sold that you wanted to have because you've had some painful experiences. Will you talk about what those have been? So, you know, for the most part, I, I, um, I shut down my social media the same day that I was selected to be actually, I believe I shut down most of my social media before jury selection after the jury I created one um, fake Twitter account to kind of monitor some of the stuff. And I know the FBI was monitoring it, but they don't tell you anything, right? So you don't really know. No, they don't like telling you anything. And we don't know. I truly didn't watch the news or talk to, you know, about the case or get anything during the trial. So we knew nothing that was going on in this world outside of the trial, or at least I didn't. So there, I found a couple of death threats made um, through the through my fake Twitter account. The FBI came out, I think, in November with a report of all of the investigations that had been going on through the trial and and whatnot, and found out there was a guy with a bunch of weapons that was asking for a top floor in a hotel nearby. Don't know if that was about us or if that was about protesters, but our fears were kind of real or realized. And that was the thing I knew you're kind of um, darned if you do and darned if you don't on this verdict, because there are extremists on both ends. Right. And so I think it's the extremists that you worry about more than you do the people that are the loudest voicing out there on the streets kind of thing. But so I found a couple of death threats, obviously, from that FBI report. Um, there was a lot more that they were investigating and found. And of course, I'm not on the extremist social media platform. So I'm not reading. Them. I'm just reading the general Twitter ones. And then we I've kept in touch with a lot of the jury folks. And so some of the other folks were finding some things, too. So I know of two death threats made. <laughs> In a crazy coincidence, I mean, it's you kind of wonder when you're you can stop looking over your shoulder. But the house behind mine within this last month, somebody kicked in their door and just started shooting. Okay, I live in a fairly affluent suburb. Like this isn't, I mean, well, nowadays you can't ever say anything's not in commonplace because. The world's gone a little crazy, but just somebody kicked in the door and started shooting. And I had called the police because my first instinct or reaction was they got the wrong house. So that street and my street are both dead ends. And they easily could get confused as to which house to get to kind of thing. So I called and I talked to one of the police officers and um, they said, as far as we know, you know, this wasn't about trying to get to you or whatever, but we just don't know. I'll have the investigating officer give you a call, you know, whatever, whatever. So I'm kind of freaking out for a few days. Right. And then, of course, I'm thinking of all my other neighbors and friends that live next to me and whatnot. And just going, my gosh, was this meant for me? Was Does this have to do with it? Because that's what you're afraid of. Like one of those death threats early on was... I would be surprised if they're alive one year from now 
right? So here you are, how many months later, and you've got this death threat from that was made back in April, May of they won't be alive one year from now. And all of a sudden, somebody just happens to pick the house directly behind mine, kicks in the door and randomly starts shooting. I've always, I've had a camera on the back side of my house for many, many years, but I did put one up on the front side of my house too, because of this case. And I did look at my camera then to see if I had any evidence for the police or whatever. And there's no visual on it, but there's the full audio my camera picked up of what happened. So I turned that into the police, but um, they did arrest the guy they had him. It was just randomized and it was a mental health issue for this guy. But point being, like in my mind, that's where my mind is always going to go. And I don't know when that's going to go away. Um, and of course, you know, I've got two kids too. So you worry about it there. Um, so, um, the fear is real. And I think the threats have proven to be real to some degree as well. Like I said, they arrested that guy at the hotel and stuff, but yeah. Um, thank you for telling me that. Um, when it came time for the verdict to be read, what was that like for you? You know, I wasn't the foreperson. Um, and based on, I guess, my previous experience serving on jury and I guess what you see on TV, you kind of thought, oh, the foreperson's the only one that's going to have to talk in the courtroom. But the judge went around then and pulled each of us. And we had to confirm that this was our verdict. And that almost made it worse, right? Like, I didn't have to expect to say anything. And you're just like deer in headlights. Oh, my gosh, I have to say this out loud. And we, we left the courtroom in the back. So we basically went into the back hallway, which is all the judges chambers, and then walked down to another um, secured courtroom. That's where we hung out during the day. And you walk out that back door. And I think I was the first one out the door that day, or maybe the second one. And you, the tears just come. You just all, I think every woman on the jury started just crying. Um, some of us more falling almost and some just silent tears, but it was this huge exhaustion, emotion. Uh, I, I don't even know if there's words as to what we were feeling. It wasn't a relief. It wasn't, I, there was guilt. Um, when I, when I told somebody I had guilt, um, someone accused me of being culturally insensitive. And I was just kind of like, I never signed up to have to send a man to prison. I never signed up to have to label somebody a murderer. Like that's where the guilt comes. I'm, I'm totally fine with our verdict. I know it was the right verdict. I know. Um, but I, this isn't my career. Like 
I didn't want to do this in my life. And I'm, I'm a human and I feel for other humans, right? Like, and I said this, even in my questioning, there's more lives affected than just George Floyd's, right? Like this is so much broader than that. And you just, you feel right. But you just can't even explain it to be honest. And we just cried and cried and hugged each other. <laughs> Earlier, I, I had mentioned that agreeing to this interview was something you had to really sit with. Um, so why did you agree to talk to me? Why did you want to talk to me? Maybe this is part of my therapy because I'm not going to therapy. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? I mean, we, I, I got all day. Right. Um, I think also I recently just found out that there's a, a representative here in Minnesota that is working on a trauma informed jury selection bill. And I've, have been in contact with that representative now because I said, it's not just about that 10, 14 page questionnaire, whatever it was that was so invasive and intrusive, but it's, it's actually serving on the jury too. Like this has to be a jury trauma informed jury selection and service, right? Because it goes so much beyond that. So, you know, I'm get a hopefully get more involved with that representative on that bill and we're going to hopefully find a county or two to pilot something you know there there has to be change in the criminal justice system as a whole we knew that before the trial we for many many years we've talked about how there needs to be justice reform but it needs to also be considered not just for how we're policing or how we're um, sentencing people but it also needs to be for the jurors. Considering there's the trial of the three other officers involved in that murder, what do you hope that those jurors keep in mind as they go through this process? Plan on mental health therapy. Like, just plan for it. Just make the decision before it even starts to do it. Um, try to find the joys where you can in life. You don't have to be so stoic and not say anything and not still just be human. You can enjoy little things. And so do that and plan on doing therapy. Was it worth it? Are you glad you did it? Maybe that's not the right word. I don't yeah. know what the right word is. But you know what I mean? I can't ever say I'm glad I did it. No, I'll never be glad I was on this trial. Never. It was the, you know, it was the right verdict. I know that based on the evidence and the law. So I don't, I don't have any regrets as far as that goes. You know, um, I know I did right. I, I literally did not think I was going to get picked for the, ju the jury. There was so many reasons for me not to be picked for the jury, given my career history, my, I literally said in selection, I believe that the criminal justice system is biased and broken. Um, and they still picked me. So <laughs> I, I was going to do, I, you know, I told the truth on everything. I was not going to lie to get out of jury duty, which I know a lot of people do. I mean, this is a duty, but, you know, 
do it all over again? No, never. If I get, if I ever, I, I think I'm done for my lifetime with juries and, and I may get summoned again. I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to be like, listen, I've done my duty. I was on the show the <laughs> jury. I'm done. I'm done. You can, I, nope, <laughs> do not select me for this jury. <laughs> this is, I am done. You find somebody else, the 40 friends that I know of that I can name right now that have never gotten a jury summons, you find one of them because <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't ever wish a jury like this for anyone ever. But I'm glad that we had the jury jury pool that we had because we we did it right. I know that we did it right. I know people questioned it all the time, questioned the motives of everyone on the jury and whatnot. But I have no doubt. And I was the one that was there. So. Thanks for talking with me. Yeah. Thank you, Kyle. It's It's been interesting. And yeah, we'll see where life takes me. And I don't know. I can't wait for the day that I stop looking over my shoulder. Waiting for the next something to hit. It will happen eventually. Audacious is produced by me. Jessica Severin Martinez and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns, Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious wherever you get your podcasts, and you can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.